You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. Just because you see what is yours. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller. My guest this week is Heather Lucas. Heather originally hails from the UK but now lives in Australia where she runs an equine-assisted psychotherapy centre. Heather contacted me a while ago and told me her story and I just thought a lot of the ways she looks at the world are fascinating, including uh, something that we'll get into later that she calls rewilding, which really, really interests me. Uh, We had a great conversation and I hope you enjoy this one as much as I do. Heather Lucas, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Hi, Warwick. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you here. You know, you might be one of the first people I've had on the podcast who who emailed me and said, I think I'd be a good guest for your <laughs> podcast. It's You know, and we, we chatted a little bit before you came on here and you said, oh, you know, I'm not really like that. And it was a bit brash of me or whatever. And, and, I would be the same way in the same situation. So it sounds to me like you stepped outside your comfort zone doing that and it worked. So, yeah, you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it feels pretty brash and pretty against what I'm usually like. But here we are. So I'm really I'm really glad I did. <laughs> yeah, no, because there's, there's a lot of things that, uh, that you have knowledge about that I want to talk about. So the, the thing that you've been doing mostly for, I guess, a number of years now is equine assisted therapy so you you run the brisbane equine assisted therapy center is that what it's called yeah that's right so we run it here sort of 50 minutes north of brisbane city i'm really blessed to have a team of six therapists that work with me in my practice and we've got five horses in our herd that will work alongside us and um yeah really we work with individuals and groups we work from sort of ages four right the way up to adulthood and we work with schools, groups, we run little retreats and things. And that's the sort of my day-to-day work, really. I've been in this practice for four years now. Yeah. And tell me, I don't know much about how equine-assisted therapy works. I've had, I've been to therapists, mm. but how does the equine-assisted therapy work? Is there, is there, is there like, let me ask you this do you work with clients away from the horses and then go in with the horses or at all is it all with the horses how's that work yeah that's a good question so it depends is the short answer so some clients really come to us because they've been to 10 therapists in room-based therapy before and they want something different so we don't go near the clinic rooms and we're out sitting under trees on beanbags from the get-go with the horses around and for some clients we sort of dip in and out of the clinic room if that sort of helps meet their needs as well. So um, the model that I'm trained in is through the Equine Psychotherapy Institute and I'm one of their trainers as well. So that's the other part of what I do. And that's, you know, it's a really specific way of bringing the horses into therapy. It's not just a bolt-on of you go out and you do your CBT, 
in the presence of horses and you sort of use horses as a tool in the same way you might use a worksheet or something else. Um, in this model, the horses are really integrated in in quite specific ways that honor them as sentient beings with their own yes and no. It's all consent-based work. And it really, I guess at the core of it, brings in the horse's feedback, the horse's unique response to the client presenting as they are. And that becomes often the material or sort of trusting the horses to show up as they do and see what unfolds from that. That's a, a very sort of simplified way of, of describing some of what we do. Do you have five horses? I do. Yes. Yeah. We've got three. Okay. So I imagine they all have different personalities. Do you have different horses for different people like you know when you start working with a client you think oh we need to go and see so and so because he will he will get <laughs> to the bottom of you is it, is it like that that's good to know like um so there's an element of that where I start to see parallels in some of my horses stories and then some of my clients stories and that can really support self-compassion because it's often a very easy to be compassionate towards an animal so for example I have a mom called Tala she's wonderful she went through sort of showing background but then she got chased when she was young and had some scars from running through a fence so she was no good in showing she went to dressage but the scars left her with a funny gait so she was no good in dressage and then she went to be a broodmare but she wasn't keeping foals so she was no good there either and she went to pony club and so on. And she's quite a sensitive mare. So there's lots of examples of her not being sort of not fitting in and not being useful in lots of ways. And when, you know, sometimes there are parallels between that and clients who have conditions where they feel that they're now a burden or they're no longer useful to society. And we think, well, what would it be like to say that to Tala? And oh, goodness, no. Well, she's just beautiful as she is you know I'm like oh okay <laughs> is she you know so there's elements like that um and we do have a range of diff really different personalities in the herd which is cool like most of them have quite a, a big story behind them um in terms of rescue or so on and like I try not to stay attached to that narrative because I think the horses are so ready to let go of it but it's 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 nice to to know the story so but when you say, um, you know, do I sort of lead clients towards horses? It's funny and it might sound cliche, but it's not like the horses show up. So sometimes I'll think, okay, like Dakota's the guy here. I'm just have that thought and he's in the round yard waiting as we're about to walk down there or he's wandering up the hill. And sometimes I'll think, okay, it's got to be juky for this one. Um, I'm starting to formulate what's interesting and the client's level of safety and someone else will show up and I'll trust that process and, oh, okay, that's why. And so, I mean, really the core of what we do is trusting the horses to show up as they need to. There's no like performing. They're not therapy horses. They're not trained in specific ways. They're safe enough to be around humans and, and that's sort of all I ask of them. So um, I've always said I don't want therapy animals. I want animals with me in therapy, and that's sort of the approach, I guess. Yeah. Wow, I love that. You know, it was interesting reading your – you sent me like a bit of a CV, you know, telling me your story. 
before the podcast, and in there you had said that, like you, you had you were first interested in zoology, and then you're interested in vet school, and then you were interested in something or other else and psychology, and you you said something along the lines of, but no one wants a therapist with no life experiences, and you just said that all these horses, a lot of them have. Uh, baggage you know the their rescues that you know what i mean so it sounds like or it sounds like all the horses you have have a lot of life experience you know like you don't horse doesn't end up in a rescue situation without you know going through some things whether it's you know whether it's abandonment or, or bad treatment that that causes them to have behavioral supposed behavioral issues or whatever but it's just interesting while you were saying that i was thinking yeah you said that you want to be a psychiatrist with <laughs> no one wants a therapist with no life experiences and then you're telling me that all these horses that you have there all have a great deal of life experience so i thought that was pretty cool yeah yeah i've never really thought of it that way but it is it is really true and i think the horses that balance of like the story being true but also the willingness to let go of that and you know once their needs are met it doesn't really matter. Like, yeah, there might be some like trauma memories and things that crop up and it can inform, okay, we're behaving this way maybe because of that, but that doesn't define them anymore. And when I first got Dakota and then I found your work for probably two years, Warwick, I was dancing around him like, oh, he's had such a tricky life. Like, no, like I can't ask anything of him. He'll probably never want to be ridden again. And I was really sort of pandering around him and he's standing there like, I'm ready. Like I'm here. My needs are met now. Let's, let's see where we go. And the journey with him has been pretty, um, a lot of learnings in that. Yeah. Is he the horse that was a former rodeo bronc? He was, yeah. Not a very successful one and, and sort of nothing against, um, the, the rodeo bronking scene, but he, um, he was born out on a station and um, his destiny was to be a bronc horse. And I have the video of him first coming out of the shoot. And I don't know, like maybe he had booked before, but when he went to the rodeo, he just comes out and he walks and the cowboy is sort of sparing him and, and then he trots <laughs> and then he falls back to a walk and he stands there. And I'm like, okay. And then he went through, um, I believe it was Laidley Sales a couple of times and ended up in what they call the dogger pens here, um, which is sort of, mm -hmm. you know, not, not a great fate. But thankfully for him, he's a very pretty Palomino. He's a bit of a Barbie pony. So someone saved him. They maybe didn't quite have the means to look after him. So he's quite like mal malnourished. And um, then our paths cross when I'm sort of a couple of years into living over here and start looking for my first horse and I've been out of horses for sort of 10 years at this point. So I'm like, what? I don't know Australia. Where do I find a horse here? So I went on Gumtree. <laughs> Maybe not the wisest way to start looking. And I found him and the rest sort of history. Gumtree, <laughs> few Americans, Gumtree is like, few Americans, Gumtree is like Craigslist in America. I'm not sure what in other countries it is, but you know, it's, it's where you just post your things you want to sell. It's like a garage sale online. So there's a painting of a Palomino horse behind you. Is that him? That is him. Yeah, my that sort of doubles oh, up as my art studio when I'm um, – and my idea is when I'm teaching my students online, they can see the progress. But he's been sitting there half finished for about the last two years. <laughs> oh, well, let's talk about that. So at some point in time you said you had half of a fine arts degree. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I 
really struggled to know what I wanted to do when I grew up. So like I said to you in my email, I started off with, well, I applied to do physiotherapy and then well, it's got to be something closer to, with the intention to moving into animal physio. And I thought, no, I want to be closer to animals off the bat. So went into zoology and quickly learned wasn't quite what I was what I was hoping for. So then I moved to do psychology and law. So that's my undergrad that I actually finished. <laughs> and then after that, like I said, realized I definitely didn't want to be a lawyer. And the story I told myself was who wants to see a 21-year-old psychologist with no life experience? So I sort of potted around for a couple of years, run a dog training school, worked at my old high school. And then I always had a passion for art. My granddad was an incredible artist and I used to sit on his lap and watch him paint. And I went and sort of funded myself through half a fine art degree. <laughs> but you know what's funny, Warwick, the reason I didn't continue is I think I was so entrenched in academia and I could see like my ego coming through in the art class and I just, I wasn't ready to be there. So, you know, I'd be painting something and I'd be going to my tutor like, how is it? Like, how am I doing? And he's like, it is what it is. Like, what are you feeling about? And I'm like, like, no, but like, how, like, give me a grade sort of thing. I really wanted that. So I just wasn't in the space to sort of blend art and study. So I uh, separated the two and now it's just purely for fun. And then I went into teaching. So, yeah. And how long have you been in Australia? Um, six years now. So, yeah, when I didn't sort of continue on through art school, I had studied all sciences at A-level at college. So I went back to uni to study as a high school um, chemistry teacher. And I taught in the UK for four years before sort of coming, getting a little bit sort of dismayed with that. And then I moved to Thailand for two years and taught there. And then I came over on a summer holiday with the intention of seeing um, what I thought of Australia, and then I met a boy, and the rest history. <laughs> yeah, and the so rest is history. Six years. Um, tell me about two years in Thailand. How was that? Yeah, it was pretty great. Like as I said, I was teaching in the UK, and I was teaching at some pretty tricky schools, and um, found it quite sort of draining after a, a few years. So I thought, I'm passionate about teaching. I'm passionate about helping kids. Maybe a change of scene is what needs to happen, and. To be honest, I think I'd watched the film Eat, Pray, Love, and then I got onto the job search website and thought, <laughs> I want a bit of that, <laughs> and off I went. So I was um, head of a six-form college over there. So it was a UK sort of um, formulated school in terms of the curriculum, and I was teaching chemistry and a bit of psychology over there. And it was great. It was really different. It was such an experience and an awesome base to travel on and see a lot more of the world yeah so did you have some eat pray love experiences i think so um quite quite a lot of me in a backpack and just booking flights hopping from one place to another and experiencing different cultures and i used to have um i'm a bit of a pinterest board person you know i used to have a lot of different things going on of designing my dream home and all of this when i was younger and every time I'd see something like the um, the big limestone pillars in Thailand or 
one of the boats I'd like oh I'd scroll past it quickly because it it bothered me it, it was like it was something I knew I needed to do but I never felt quite ready for like it, it was a bit daunting like I traveled well and I lived in like America for a few months and I've traveled Europe a lot but going a bit further and on my own was a bit of a challenge and eventually I just couldn't ignore that niggle anymore so yeah lots of cool learnings over there for sure I bet and you briefly mentioned that you in England you were teaching at a tricky school what exactly is a tricky school I think um at the time there were lots of changes in management and lots of behavior problems as we'd call them across the school in terms of engagement students wanting to learn and students getting in trouble outside of school too so the sort of undercurrent was quite poor behavior and sort of lack of I mean the word respect in the sense that you know it's a a demand that we should be respected but there was a really a, a lack of trust I think in the in this school from the students point of view and in in sort of leadership but I mean we had a wonderful headmaster who came in as I started and it it got better it really did um but sort of quite low socioeconomic area quite challenging behavior and and students that just didn't really want to learn a lot of them you know a lot a lot of the battle wasn't their ability or um anything like that it was they hadn't had experiences of wanting to be curious and learning for the sake of wanting to learn and and I think that was probably the the biggest challenge and you know I've got there's lots of reasons why schools are the way they are but I think for me as someone quite sensitive and has a tendency to look at the whole person and the story I found it quite challenging some of the ways we needed to manage behavior in schools Mm. yeah um you know in the last quite a few years now i've been really taking a bit of a deep dive into all things related to trauma and you think you know you think with like a low socioeconomic area like that there's a there's a lot of do you think there's a lot of trauma looking back at that stuff do you think there's a lot of trauma that that really gets in the way of those kids succeeding at school? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, our, our definitions of, of trauma are really broadening and, and we can include, you know, the what's often referred to as the big T traumas or the single incidents or the, the big or prolonged experiences. But for me, you know, a lot of those students certainly had um, – experiences of developmental trauma or interpersonal trauma or just that their needs not not being met it's very easy for even well-meaning parents to to not meet our needs growing up absolutely so it's um yeah that was definitely very present it's interesting you brought that up because you know the you mentioned big t traumas big t traumas are you know you know obvious abuse, blatant abuse, that, you know, that sort of thing. But the little T traumas like that, just the, the needs not being met thing. And that's, and that's not a reflection on anybody's parents. Um, 
I think they all are doing the best that they can in the information they have. But I'm, I think there's kind of like an epidemic of, of that type of trauma that really affects so many people. You know, the people that think that I had a perfect childhood, but I'm all, I think I'm all as screwed up as anybody else, which I fall under that category right there. And it's, it's interesting when you start to understand what meeting a child's needs actually means. And it's, it's, it's for me that that work is really, inf- understanding that stuff has really influenced my work with the horses too, because it's, it's your presence. It's, oh. it's, there's not a lot to it, but there's a lot to it. Yeah, certainly. I heard um, Gabo Mate say recently, you know, if you don't have a parent who can hold you, you'll create a mind that can hold itself and, and not hold you as in obviously physically hold you, but as in be present for your emotions as they are. And I think that's where a lot of my work with authenticity sort of coming in now, because, you know, I think authenticity and connection seem like two needs of ours that would go hand in hand um, in the sense that we need to be able to be authentic to truly connect. And I think that that is, is the case, but, you know, as babies, we are, I believe, born into the world as authentic beings. And then we go through this process of learning, okay, you know, if I'm, if I start being angry or throwing a tantrum, I might get put out in time out. So what the message is there? Okay, when I'm angry, I'm rejected and I need to come back to, you know, normal or baseline to be accepted back into the herd, so to speak. And quite quickly we learn to shut down parts of ourselves and to just you know disconnect maybe we'll have experiences where some feelings are welcome in the home like you you know anger's maybe okay but sadness is or fear is weak so we replace that with with anger and, and I know you'll know a lot a lot about this already but yeah certainly we start to move on this path of of I guess yeah moving away from our authentic selves and it's so well celebrated too, you know, oh, you're such a good kid or you're so quiet, you're so well-mannered. And maybe we start to overcompensate those parts of ourselves that are celebrated. Um, in in our therapeutic model, we talk about self-compensation and self-negation. And the self-compensation is, okay, I'll come home from school and with a grade A, I get lots of praise and attention. I'll compare that to the time where I cried and I got told I'm too emotional and I fear rejection. I'm going to I'm going to focus a lot more on this good stuff that gets me connecting and and, and less so on this and um and losing parts of ourselves in order to stay connected because when you're a child like developmentally it, it it is life or death if we're reliant on our adults or caregivers to keep us alive and safe then yeah, of, of course I'm going to turn towards myself and blame myself for being too much or too this or too that rather than them as being faulty because that's that's far too scary for a child to comprehend that parents are limited. And as you said, no blame in that. You know, everyone's doing the best they can with, with what they've got, but it's just, it's the reality. And um, I think that Jim, you know, Jimmy Carr, the comedian, he said, um, don't, don't, 
ask a comedian if they're depressed because that's a bit of a sort of common, you know, sort of thought that a lot of comedians are depressed, right? Um, he said, ask them who in their family they needed to cheer up. And Robin Williams said the same thing. Like, it's funny, I have, you know, isn't it mm -hmm. weird that I made my mum laugh? Like, I had to make my mum laugh? Like, no, actually, it's really intelligent and a really smart thing for you to do as a kid to stay connected. But now as the society was celebrating what is, in fact, a, a coping mechanism, really, you know, in parts of it, absolutely, it's celebrating it's healthy, but looking at what's lying under that. Anyway, I'm digressing, but... <laughs> No, that's that's not digressing at all. That's, you know, that's the big thing I'm on about these days is understanding that stuff, understanding that you, you, um, you know, you lost parts of yourself in order to please people. You know, I've got some pretty good people-pleasing tendencies. It's funny you mentioned Gabor Mate a minute ago. And it's my, I forget what we were talking, my wife and I were talking about here probably a month or so ago, but she was saying, so my wife, her dad, her family moved from the area we live in now down south of here to uh, probably four or five hours south of here uh, to a place near Vandenberg Air Force Base. So my wife's father worked in the aerospace industry and he worked in a, for a company that made the rockets that steer the space shuttle. And he worked in the part of that that made that that made the propellant that powered the rockets to steer the space shuttle. So he got a job down there with I think it was with Boeing, and uh, they moved down there for a few years. But then they were going to move back up here to a different job. Right as my wife was has started high school, so she was what they call a freshman in high school. It took me about fifteen years to figure out what that word meant because they don't say I'm in the eighth grade or the ninth grade. Or the, they say they're a freshman or a sophomore. Or, Still have to think about it. Um, and she was telling me recently that, well, this is probably a month ago, that when they moved back, she had the choice when she moved back to, backed up to this area, that her parents said she could go to her, to the high school of the town, the next town over, because that's where all her friends from little school were. Or she could go to school in this town we, we live in now. And it's kind of started fresh. And Robin said to me, she said, oh, so I went to one of my teachers and um, asked him what he thought of the whole thing, you know. And she said that to me and it just kind of, I'm like, I can't imagine doing that. Like the way I grew up, I couldn't imagine doing that. And then yeah. I'm listening, not very long after, I'm listening to Gabor Mate's book, uh, The Myth of Normal. And he, was talk he said he was talking to someone about trauma. And this guy said, I didn't have any trauma at all. Mm. And Gabor said to him, when you were a child, was there an adult figure you could go to when you had a problem? And be completely honest with them. Wow. Oh. I'm getting feelings. And the guy said no. And yeah, and when I heard that, I'm like, wow. You know, and, and yeah, it was it was right after my wife said, yeah, I went to the, you know, this 
teacher that I could talk to about things, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's the other. So, yeah, so there was kind of like when, when you said Gabor Mate and, and you said about the the being held thing and I thought, yeah, well, there's another Gabor Mate story I've got here too, you know. Mm. Now, that's a that's a really good one. I think there's lots of reasons why we can't do that and I think one of the first things that I'm keen to do with people is to normalise um, a lot of that. You know, it's quite – it's it's an intelligent, it's healthy, it's meeting your needs in the best way you can to withhold at times because you, your intuition's teaching you to do that and, and, and trusting that process. You know, maybe if you share an emotion or a feeling or the, your truth with, with an adult in your life, you've learned over time that you then end up managing their emotional response to your emotions and it becomes not, not what it was anymore or it's not safe to. And, um, I think when we can start from a place of understanding, then yeah, that's a, that's a good a good baseline from which to sort of launch into to learning how that impacts us now. Hmm. Yeah, if anybody has not read that book, um, "The Myth of Normal" by Gabor Mate, it um, I I would listen to it while I was jogging, and I'd be running down the street, and my head would be like nodding like this, you know, like oh yeah yeah yeah. It's it's kind of like it's a lot of it I'd heard before, you know, in the last four or five years, yeah. um, but it was almost like all condensed into like one one thing. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And then there was then there was things like that bit, you know, when you were a child, did you ever have an adult you could when you had a problem you could go to and be completely honest with them, mm. and if you didn't. There's a trauma right there. Yeah, you know what I mean. So anyway, yeah. So when you said, uh, th- and this all came from the tricky school comment, you were kind of mm. just going to skip over that. And I thought, no, that's where the meat is right there. Why was the school tricky? And yeah, interesting stuff. So the you're now doing the equine assisted therapy, but you are starting into something. You started up something that um, I'm pretty interested in and you call it rewilding can you tell us about rewilding well actually the well you want you want me to read the you want me to read the short version out that you gave me and then we can talk about that if you like sure it says put simply rewilding is the concept of letting nature take care of itself it's a belief that you are nature and you have the ability to heal yourself it's a belief that you have within you the ability to flourish and step into your true potential and uncover your true nature Passionate about the power of reconnecting with nature and integrating a whole-person approach to healing and personal growth, Heather developed rewilding, blending modern psychotherapy theory with the ancient wisdom of the horse. Heather demystifies what it means to rediscover, re is in parentheses, discover your true self. With horses as teachers and guides, dive into key principles that equip you with the knowledge, skills and confidence to step into your true potential. Rewilding through the wisdom of horses. We often hear the adage horses are our best teachers however the plethora of information and feedback they can offer can be distorted through our lenses beliefs about ourselves and the world or limited by our current understanding horses are masters of living authentically heather supports you to find the safety and freedom to dismantle beliefs you once held as truths and to utilize the wisdom of horses to support you to deepen your awareness <clears throat> excuse me in connection with yourself just as an environment rewilding approach 
sorry, just as an environmental rewilding approach doesn't look at just one species, but rather the whole ecosystem, rewilding here looks at the, all the layers, systems, and the ways that we respond to our environment that can lead to a movement away from our true self. One of the key principles is the notion that we are born into the world as our authentic selves. As we develop, it's inevitable that to stay connected to others, and we just talked about this, <laughs> we disconnect it from parts of ourselves that are rejected and we overcompensate other parts with which we are celebrated. We can lose connection with ourselves in this process. Rewilding is not a finding of self, but a return to self, a return to your true nature, a return to where your true nature can take care of itself. That's, that, is, that is awesome. And what's, oh, what I've discovered in the last four or five or six years or however long it's been is the whole idea of who I thought I was is not who I was, mm. you know, who had been conditioned to be or the way I'd been conditioned to think and look at things is not really the way that that true authentic self that I was born with. So, yeah, yeah tell, us, tell us all about this stuff. That, yeah. that fascinates me. Oh, thanks, Warwick, and thanks for sharing that. It's funny when you said that about I'm not who I thought I was, that quote came to mind, you know, you're not who you think you are and you're not who others think you are. You th you are who you think others think you are. And I'm butchering yeah, it. Yeah, I read that in, I, in, uh, I in Jay Shetty's. It was in Jay, Sh yeah, oh, I read yeah. it in Jay Shetty's Think Like a Monk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are not who you think you are. You are not who I think you are. You are who you think I think you are. Yeah, that's the one. Um, That's but, the one. yeah, I mean, I think the core of it or, or the why is giving people the knowledge that I wish I had sooner that I've learned through my own personal journey of healing, a continued journey, of course, and my journey with my own horses and their healing and my work as a therapist and teacher. So it's sort of, it's just bringing all of those elements together under something that feels like a fitting banner. Um, the Brisbane equine assisted therapy work is very much a, does what it says on the tin and it, it really reaches the needs of our, of our area. And for people that are on the fence about this relatively new modality, um, it's not sort of too far into the woo, but rewilding's my space to sort of unleash all of those um parts of what I do that can't be you know that are sort of can't be explained or they're limited by our current vocabulary so that that's that's the core of it is is supporting people to have a bit of a blueprint to support them to return to authenticity and I know that word authenticity sort of banded around and I was trying to, I was thinking true self authenticity, but really for me, the truth of authenticity is being connected to our body and our emotions and allowing them to inform us. Like that's, that's what it is. Um, it, it's not this sort of, you know, high personal development, toxic positivity sort of stuff. It, it, it that's it. It's cool. Um, and I think horses can really teaches a lot about being authentic. You, when the needs are met, they show up in the world authentically. They don't think and second guess and move into people pleasing. They um, they know how to get their needs met. And there's that diversity there 
within my head at least and I see all their personalities shine and I think how sad it would be if they all tried to be dislike one another and it's sort of the part of the concept of rewilding there's lots of reasons for that name um the whole letting nature return to itself and that sense of we do have the ability to heal ourselves with the right conditions um but also that sense of we need diversity in an ecosystem and and that's what being authentic is all about it's not about pretending to be more like someone else or getting rid of those parts or overcompensating those other parts so I guess that's it at its core I wanted um to take my work online in a, in a sense and make it accessible um more more so than my like I do do work over zoom and I do a lot of supervision and and work with some clients in therapy over zoom too but I wanted to try and bring as much of the aliveness <laughs> of nature on online and sort of accessible as I can as well. So that's um, a big part of it. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I've, I think I've talked about it before on the podcast and I've talked about it at clinics and things, but I think one of the cool things about horses is they are, they are nature hmm. and, they are subject to the rules of nature, which you can't mess with. And, you know, it, it's a little bit like my son's into surfing, you know. Yeah. The ocean is nature. You, you know, you, you can't change it. You have to learn how to read it and go along with it. And kind of the same thing with horses, you know. You, I, I just think I love the term rewilding because it, you know, you know, working with horses is one way we can get back in touch with nature. You know, you probably know that my wife and I have been doing ice baths mm. for quite a while now. And, you know, and that's, I've, he I've heard the term rewilding in relation to ice baths okay. because our bodies are supposed to be able to withstand this broad range of temperatures. It's, it's made to do that. We, we evolved that way. And then in the last few hundred years, we haven't been too hot and we haven't been too cold for the most part. And you kind of lose a part of, you know, kind of lose a part of, of how you were supposed to, to be. Have you ever read a book called um, Ishmael? I have not, no. No? I'm aware of it, but. Uh, it's an amazing book, but. Um, but it talks about that, about how, you know, about 10,000 years ago when we started to grow more food than we can eat, you know, the start of agriculture, mm. how we started living differently than we evolved and we've been going kind of downhill since then as far as getting away from our true, our true nature. And, you know, and I think in, in, a, in a small way, anything you can do with nature, but being with horses and interacting with horses is... Um, a way to start to get back towards that, you know? Yeah, certainly. And I think that alludes to some of, like, the latter of what you're saying to some of the things I found difficult at school. You know, we teach kids to sit still and, and not fidget and can you wait to go to the bathroom and finish your plate or this is when you need to eat. And really, like, normal things required of a big, you know, environment where we're managing lots of little people. But it's just that moving away from like a subtle moving away from listening to your body, which I think accumulates over time. Um, 
just when you said that about the not being too hot or too cold. But yeah, in relation to being around horses, there's two things I I thought of as you were speaking. The first was, um, you know, a lot of what I do, where I start in in therapy when I'm working with people who do have maybe quite a complex or, or difficult history of trauma is maybe reframing some of the the current ways of coping. So say maybe dissociating is, is something that they're, they're experiencing, which to me sounds like a very clinical term that says there's something wrong with you. But when we look at, and I know you've talked to this um, before on the podcast that, you know, that's for a horse, you know, shutting down or dissociating or a wild animal. That's part of the repertoire of healthy go-to behaviors they have. And maybe that's a really intelligent way of coping. And that's part of the, um, things you had available to you at the time. So again, the lens of looking at that through through horses can be quite disarming for people and quite important. And then maybe I'll share a little of some of the horses' stories of, of their healing and that can support some hope too. Um, but that's a good place to start. And um, the second is I've just started looking into um, – Dasha Keltner's work from the Greater Good Science Center. I think he's a professor there and he's researching into awe. And I'm just fascinated in how horses can, um, well, I think horses can induce a state of awe in humans, especially like a herd of galloping horses or when a horse comes and walks up to you at liberty um, and chooses to be. I, To me, I think I experience awe then. And I think that's what a lot of my clients do. And the research around awe and like vagal tone and personality traits that show up more or less when we're in the presence of something that induces awe is so cool. So um, it no, it doesn't have to be horses, it's nature as well, like trees, anything that sort of, what's the definition of awe? Like something that transcends your current understanding of the world or something like that. But I think it's the sort of where I'm going at the moment in some of my reading and the dude's name's what dasha something? dasha keltner i believe it's the he's a i know that he's a professor at it's at uc berkeley and he um he runs or is a part dasha, of like on dasha don on prancer on Vixen, it's in like on... d-a-c-h-e-r i think yeah um, oh, okay. I was thinking with an S and I was thinking, yeah, well, like- his parents must have thought he's going to be fast or something rather than naming him Dasher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Greater Good Science Center. I think you can look it up, but there's quite a lot of research on awe and its impacts on people and, and, and creating this sense of like connectedness or like collective effervescence is one of the terms that I loved it's like when people are joining together with the same sort of intention, the, the energy that happens. Um, but they found when they exposed, like, I don't, again, I'm probably butchering the, the research here, so forgive me. But the, the core of the story is when they exposed people to trees for a period of time and being amongst trees in, in nature. The, and then I don't know how they measured this, but they found that the tendencies to be narcissistic were reduced significantly and I think you know it's like Ralph Waldo Emerson talks about like the transcendence that happens when we're in front of the ocean and that sort of 
the, the removal from their egocentric self to the sort of collective self. And I think maybe that's a part of what shows up for people with horses. I mean, I certainly think that's the case. Yeah, there's something about those things that make you feel small. Yeah. Um, there was a really good show on um, Netflix a few years ago now, and it was called One Strange Rock, I think. And it was compared by Will Smith, I think. But it was it was he talked to astronauts who've been to been off the planet and they all said once you get off the planet and you look back through the window at this blue thing floating in space you are not the same ever again yeah like it just gives you a complete complete perspective perspective change and it's something i was going to bring up because you mentioned it before you said that um equine assisted therapy in australia is like for some people they think that's kind of Strange, but there was some news recently um, out of Australia that the therapy community there is probably as is probably further ahead than anywhere in the world, where they've just approved psilocybin and MDMA for psychedelic assisted therapy, mm. and I think they actually could be leading the world uh, in that. Because I messaged, uh, have you heard the podcast with Dr. Will Sue? Yeah. 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 So I messaged Will and I'd send him the thing and he's like, that's awesome. He said, they have just, Australia's just gone to the front of the pile as far as, um, so Will had just been in um, Iceland and had a meeting with, well, him and, and Gabor Mate went to Iceland and maybe Rick Doblin did too. Um, and they had a meeting with the head of a major government department that has to do with regulation of things. Mm. And I think the um, I think the minister or whoever they were meeting with, the guy's wife had recently had a, a underground uh, MDMA therapy session and and thought this was just an amazing tool to to help people. But yeah, they are they are very very interested in in um, that but yeah i just wanted to bring that up that if you mm. think equine assisted therapy is people in australia think that's weird yeah australia just went to the top of the pile as far as the the um psychedelic assisted therapy and from uh from my underground experience it is life-changing that's so cool yeah i think when i say it's um it's pretty out there i think the important thing to note over here is it's quite unregulated so like I'm really fortunate that I'm part of the EPI and I train for them and we're doing a lot of work to really sort of tidy up the industry. But in the like the word psychologist is very closely regulated, so you can't call yourself a psychologist unless <laughs> you are one. But the word therapy and the term equine therapy, you can have a paddock and a pony and it's paddockpony.com and you call yourself an equine therapist. So I think that's why there's some skepticism around it it's getting you know there's a lot of organized yeah so there's a lot of organizations doing a lot of of good stuff but in terms of of finding funding for it um it it can be challenging but like we're really blessed that everyone that works for me and comes through the training they're all you know mental health or allied health specialists already and then they do the training to integrate the horses and they are therapists but 
that's not always the case. And although people may have good intentions when it comes to offering the term therapy and, and holding space for people maybe that do have trauma, I think there's a lot of risk there of, um, of what they may be unintentionally um, doing. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize I was unregulated there. I, as far as I know, here in America, you have to have a, a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, to in order to call it equine assisted therapy. Mm. Yeah, hmm. and Australia, you know, Australia is a bit of a nanny state. I, I didn't think they'd let that one. It I is. Didn't, I didn't think they'd let that one. Slip. <laughs> I mean, they've got a rule for everything there. Oh yeah, absolutely. But. Um... I, I think it, it is becoming more, um, a lot cleaner. And I think there's a lot of people doing really good work in the industry of sort of clarifying the terms, but it's just some of those, because some of the phrases aren't regulated and there's no sort of body to, to enforce that. I think that's where some of the gray areas come in, but, um, yeah, there's, it's, a, it's growing. So I think that will change. That's cool. So I'm, I'm st- let's get back to your rewilding. I'm really excited oh. about this whole rewilding thing. What, where, where did that, you know, what was the, the catalyst for you to go, I need to do, there's, there's more to this. Mm. Um, what, was the, what was the catalyst for that? The reality is it, it goes right back to my own lived experience of both having horses um, from a, quite a young age I was quite blessed and their ability to show up as and how and when I needed them the most and you know I've got quite a um I've got a history of quite you know significant trauma myself and my horses really were my safe space and so that sort of that's the undercurrent that sort of followed me through my journey and when I was teaching, I was always moving back into sort of counselling roles and moving back to horses, although, you know, I might have tried to sort of move away. They always sort of came back. So there was that intrinsic sort of knowing that the horses brought to light in my own journey that's been quite a fuel for probably me going into um, this work and then seeing their own sort of transformations through almost applying very similar work that I do when I'm working with clients who have trauma to horses. And, you know, it's a lot of what, what, what you do and that's how I, I found your work um, and seeing the, the sort of outcomes of that. And I'm realizing when I start talking about this stuff and, and using drops of my own story, not the details of it, but therapeutically saying, you know, when I first tried to do a body scan, I was like, what, feel your legs? Like, I was like, okay, sure. You know, I. it was like one of my supervisors has a, lo- a lovely way of saying it. It's like, you know, handing you a blank piece of paper and saying, hey, can you just read what's on that? Um, and, you know, like, no, and there's nothing there. Like, no, just read it. You know, just if you could just read that, that would be great. And And that was sort of my experience. And when I share little drops of that or the fact that, you know, it took me 10 sessions with the psychologist of sharing my story from like birth to now, like it's how else could you possibly help or understand me until you've heard everything before I'd let them maybe even do some somatic work. 
And even then it was like, okay, this is a waste of time because I lived in my head, you know, so that was my space. So all this body stuff. And when I can share drops of that, of my experience and how that's, that has changed now and is changing, um, I can, I can share that. Then that's when people look you in the eye for the first time. And that's when people sit up and go, oh, okay, you know, you're not just talking to me from behind a textbook or behind your degrees or whatever it might be. There's, there's some shared understanding there. And, um, you know, Peter Levine says like, you know, trauma is like living with trauma is, what did he call it? Like a, a living death or hell on earth, but resolved trauma is a gift from the gods. And I think um, the experiences I've had have, have helped me to be who I am and to have the gifts or the insight or the ability to tune, attune to clients and to, I hope, present this stuff in a way that's relatable through story and through the story of, of horses too. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I get curious sometimes whether that's, there's, there's parallels in that with my own story and Dakota's and whether, you know, when you sort of move through the work you did with Sherlock, like your understanding of, as you've talked about what it's like to be shut down, really, it gives that lived experience. It gives that different level of, of understanding. You can step into that. And that's what I try to do in my, in, in this work. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's the start of it anyway. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, yeah, it was interesting you said, you know, when they say, what is your, what do your legs feel like? You're like, I don't know. Like I, when I first started going to a therapist, you know, they say, and how does it make you feel? I'm like, I can tell you how it makes me think. I can tell you what I think of it, but I can't actually feel uh, anything of it. And yeah, and it's 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 a it's a rewilding, isn't it? Because because when you you know when we were who we used to be, we were in our bodies. We didn't have all that. We weren't not listening. Yeah. To our bodies, there was a, a book I was reading here recently. I can't remember which one it was, but it was about being in your body. But they were talking about they um they were talking about Wall Street brokers. Mm brokers, stockbrokers on Wall Street, and the ones that made the most money, and they asked them questions, and it turned out, that one, the one question they asked them all was, can you feel your own heartbeat in your body? The ones that made the most money could all feel their own heartbeat in their body, and the ones that couldn't feel their heartbeat made a lot less money, made a lot less good decisions. Huh. So it was, it was more about intuition, mm. uh, like decisions that like they look at a screen and they go boom i'm going to do buy that and there's no time to stop research calculate whatever but the people that could make more of those good decisions could feel their heartbeat and the ones that couldn't feel their heartbeat made a lot less of those i'm like whoa that's that was a cool, cool little experiment mm. yeah but yeah that it's interesting that you brought that up that you couldn't feel your yeah legs or you know i i talked before about the ice baths and i used to hate being cold and i still you know it's not like i enjoy being cold and people go oh i couldn't do an ice bath i hate being cold i'm like hey i hate being cold i used to hate being cold too but i think the thing about being cold is you feel your body 
you can feel your body. When you're in an ice bath, you know you're in an ice bath and you can feel it. You have to feel it. You can't not feel it. Mm. And I think that's why I used to not like being cold because it made me be in my body and have sensations. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny, you get to, with the ice baths, you get to where you're aware that there is a major sensation in your body, but you no longer judge it. Yes. You don't judge it as cold. Yeah. It is just, I am feeling a very strong sensation. Yeah. But you don't buy into the fact that it's cold, which means I should shiver and it should be bad and I shouldn't like it. It's just mm -hmm. like I'm experiencing a very strong sensation right yeah. now. Yeah. And, yeah. That's yeah. so cool. And, you know, that, I think that's one of the core pieces of horse wisdom that I love teaching so much is horses use their feelings as information about how they're responding to the current environment. They don't judge it. You know, they don't, a horse doesn't, you know, feel the feeling of fear and then think, oh, crap, it's probably just a plastic bag. I don't want to embarrass myself. I should probably just hold this in. You know, they, they look up, they orient to it. They need, they move as they need to, they do what they need to do. They metabolize that energy because they've listened to the need and they go back to grazing. Um, but as humans, we, you know, we hold, we hold and we <laughs> smile and nod and we do a lot of those things through necessity and intelligence, but we end up, I think, suppressing a lot through that. And I think it's Gabor again, <laughs> big fan of his that talks about suppressing anger. It's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. Have you had, heard him talk to that and uh, the energy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also I think about the, the sort of metaphor of it just popping up unexpectedly. And that's often what happens when we're suppressing emotions. You know, we just go through the day holding it, holding it, holding it in. And and we get home and there's dishes in the sink and boom, <laughs> there's a safe space and a safe person to unleash all of that we've been holding. And it's not about the dishes in the sink. It's about that almost sort of right. trigger stacking, but with feelings. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Trigger stacking with feelings. Hey, how about we get to some of the questions that you um, mm. you chose? Because I think I think your answers to the, you know a lot of times with people um, by the time I get to the questions, I've almost answered them all, but I don't think you have. So let's get into them. So your first one you chose was what was your biggest failure and how has it helped you? Mm. I think it has to be not being able to toughen up. <laughs> You know, that, that, that has to be probably it. Like I am, I'm quite a sensitive person and I used to see that as a burden. I used to get those messages or oh, you're too emotional, you're too this, take everything to heart and, and so on. And I feel like I've been able to turn that burden into a gift and, and sort of use, use the skills of that. And I, and I tried, like I really tried to, to sort of push a lot of it down and toughen up and, grow a thicker skin and all of those things. And and what it did, you know, sort of as Brene Brown says, you know, it numbed out every, sort of everything, the good as well as as, as, as the tough thing. So um, life sort of lost a lot of its um, vivid colours when I started doing that. And um, I, I think a, a big catalyst of that, I mean, horses have played a, you know, a huge role in my life from when I was young up until – Till now, of course, but I think there was a lot of my early years of training and being with my horses where it was a very traditional riding school and livery yard, and there were lots of you know 
I've done a lot of work on forgiveness of how I didn't sort of stand up for my horses at the time. But when it was just, <laughs> yeah, when it was just me and her, Molly, my first, um, first pony, that's where the sort of magic happened. But it was when other people sort of came in and, and were, you know, we, we train a lot of horses through fear, I think is what, what's really happening for a lot of people. Um, and when I could sort of strip away that and just be with her, then I could see the gifts of being sensitive. And I think, you know, I, did, I, want, I want to make mention that I'm really I'm trying not to get emotional now, but um, I'm really grateful for your journey and your openness in sharing that. Because when I bought Dakota, I just, yeah, I'd had a 10 year break from horses, which is another story in itself. <laughs> but I bought him over here and I moved to a adjustment and there were lots of sort of very traditional people around there and I would get the message of, you know, you're letting this horse walk all over you, this, you need wet saddle blankets, you need to tell him who's boss and I just knew that something wasn't right. Like I'd, I'd done a lot of work personally during that time um, but then I hadn't translated it to horses because I'd been away from horses. And then I returned to horse and I thought, I can't do the things that I used to see happening. Like I, just, I, I can't, there must be a different way. And then I found your work and it really is a space where people can see someone else doing it, someone who's in the spotlight doing it and has a lot of knowledge and skills. And it gave me the permission to be kinder to myself and kinder to my horses. So um, I'm grateful for that. But yeah, my long <laughs> circling back to the answer, I think, Really, I don't. I don't want that success without the failure because I've felt what it's like to try and toughen up, and and I wouldn't want that anymore. So I embrace it and I enjoy the gifts of being sensitive. Very cool. Um, what do you do, or where do you go to relieve stress or recharge your batteries, or what do you do to find motivation? Mm. So. It's funny, when I was returning into this field and then bringing horses in, they, they're very much my hobby as well as my job. And I work and live on site and I work with the horses that I ride and train personally in therapy. And there's like two conflicting sayings, isn't there? You know, like, don't make your hobby your job, but then, you know, do a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And <laughs> I'm sort of sitting between right. the two and the two are very different. But really it recharging for me looks like being in nature and being with the horses. Um, I do a lot of meditating when I'm out with the horses and just hanging out with them, just being with them. And I feel like after a while sort of nature starts to move differently around me when I'm in that space. And that's where I'm sort of plugged in and recharging really. So a lot to thank the horses for and, and just, um, and, and sitting under a tree as well all that awe stuff I guess I talked about before I think mm. <laughs> yes very much so um okay next question is what's one common myth about your profession or field that you want to debunk and I always love it when people choose this question because it's it's great to get that feedback from people such as yourself in a in a field that that because that can give us that because sometimes I'm even surprised at the answer, like, oh, I thought that was yeah. thought that was true or I thought that was like that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's funny. I, I had an answer and then I listened to, is it Linda Kahanov? I hope I'm pronouncing her surname right. Mm -hmm. With, and her answer to this was don't leave 
your emotions at the gate. I was like, damn it, that was going to be mine. So I had to think of something different. But that that's a key message of um, of being able to show up um, authentically. But in this work specifically, you know, the more and more I do, and especially in the rewilding space, I think the myth is that healing and personal growth or healing and personal development are two separate things. Like I actually think they're one of the same and depending on where you are in your healing journey and the upbringing you've had and your belief systems about those words, the world and, and so on, that may or may not resonate with you. And you know, I'll add the caveat that yes, I'm a qualified therapist, so I can dance the line between the two because if we're working on here and now stuff going forward and more of a coaching space and more about personal growth, if things as they often do are uncovered from trauma or from childhood experiences, I can go there with the client and that's okay. So there is that, I'm fortunate in having that ability to sort of dance both, both paths. But I think, you know, healing really is, is finding the safety to sort of be able to step back into authenticity. Like that's what I, I think healing is in, in a very short way. And I think, you know, personal growth and development is the same. It's not, we talk about in our, in our model, the, the, you know, the movement away from the ideal self model and that sort of splitting off of parts of ourselves. And one of Meg's sort of key theories underpinning what we do is the paradoxical theory of change and the tenant being the more we try to change, the more we stay the same. Um, because really if I'm thinking, okay, I just need to get rid of this, yeah, this part of me say that's sensitive or this whatever it may be, I'm I'm continuing and perpetuating that splitting off from parts of myself. I'm not integrating the whole. Um, so to me, it's all one and the same. And you know, healing isn't sitting and wallowing in your story. Like if you haven't had someone hear your story and it feels safe and you're able and it's important for you to do that absolutely there's space for that in a way that's titrated from a regulated place where you're feeling safe but we can also start from where you are and trust that what needs to will unfold and I'll offer clients both ways of working you know like I said earlier I spent 10 sessions with my psychologist going I was born here (laughs) and and away we went before I felt like she had any enough understanding to be able to support me whereas some people I'm the 10th therapist they've seen and I don't want to retell my story I want to start from here and and from where where I am now and that's when I really trust that what will what needs to unfold will and I wonder if it's probably a lot of the same with you and the horses you know once people feel that they can step into a safe relationship and they are heard and we're they're accepted for who they are. Uh, A lot of the other stuff falls away. You know, they may come with problems that are sort of day-to-day or practical or repeating patterns in relationships. And and once we actually get to that space of feeling safe, connected, and and really seen, then a lot of that other stuff kind of falls away. And that's been my experience of working with the horses in the way that you work with horses or as close as I can get to that. Yeah, it's it's yeah, like it's it's funny. Um, in the last like in the last few years, with with look, say with our younger horses, mm-hmm. you know, I like Rupert's now 
two and doesn't know anything <laughs> because I haven't really done much training with them and I haven't done a lot of connection stuff. Like it's not like I go and spend hours and hours with them every day. But, um, you know, we just moved. So we've bought a new place that we're going to be moving into by hopefully by April. Um, it's a uh, 42-acre place about two hours south of here and we want to we wanna start having, you know, more, you know, a lot of times at clinics, people have a transformational experience with their horse, just trying to, you know, me help them with their horse, but they didn't sign up for a transformational experience. And what we want to do is, is have people be aware they're going to have a bit of a transformational experience. And so we want to combine the horses with that, not, it's not equine assisted therapy, but um, we want to have, you know, we want to, Robin's probably going to lead people through ice bars and we're probably going to have a yoga instructor come in and help us out and I'm going to help with horses, things like that. Where was I going with this? Oh, yeah, so we went to move those young horses down there here recently. And uh, I uh, had Rupert when he was younger. I'd loaded him once in a trailer. And how I worked on that was I would just par I parked the trailer where there was some grass and I just would lead him up to it and sit on the back of it. It doesn't have a ramp. It's just got a step. And I'd just sit on the step and let him eat the grass for 20 minutes and I'd put him away. I did that for four or five times in a row. And then one, one day I walked up there and then I – Instead of sitting down, I just stepped in and moved into the trailer a little bit, and he just looked at me and just hopped in. You know, I didn't teach him to get in the trailer. and um, But he'd been in there, I think he'd only been in there once. And then I decided, and he was living in a pasture with our young horse, Bodie, and and the mother and another horse, Petey. Anyway, I thought, I better start working on loading these horses to move them down to the other place. And so I put the four of those in the round pen. I backed the trailer up to the round pen and opened the gate and I just threw some hay in the in the in the trailer. And so Rupert, he jumped in there to eat the hay and Bodie's like, oh what are you doing? So he jumped in there with 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 Rupert and Bodie was a very suspicious foal to start with. So they got in there so easily. I thought, okay, well I don't really need to work on that too much. So the day we went to to actually go to load them, mm. we have the horses in the round pen and Robin is backing the trailer up, so I've got to I've got to swing the door of the round pen open as the gate of the round pen open as she backs up. Okay, so I can't just back up and yep. then open. I've got to, and so I'm I'm and I've got Rupert and Bodie, so the two year old and the yearling, with a halt and lead rope on them, so they don't run out the gate when I open it. And the back of the trailer is open, and as Robin's backing up, I open the gate. Those two clowns jumped in the trailer while it was backing up. <laughs> Wow. Just piled in like I was I'm like, oh, I was gonna video this guys. But anyway, so I have people say, Hey, my horse won't get in the trailer, how do I get him in the trailer? And it's like eh. or, or or picking up feet. They're like oh, I get that a lot, you know. Uh how do I do you have a video on picking up a horse's or picking up a horse's feet who haven't had their feet picked up before? And so I've got them with, you know, probably four or five folds like the videos of doing that. And I said, well, I could direct you to the video, but it probably won't work because you haven't done all the stuff with the horse before I got to that. Yeah. Point. It's not like I did a lot of work with them, but, mm -hmm. you know, I tell people that in order for a horse to stand on three legs, they have to feel safe because it, they're, yeah. they're giving up one of their, their, their survival mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of people have trouble with their horse's feet because the horse doesn't feel safe and then doesn't feel safe around them. Mm. 
and then the person they don't feel safe around they want to try to pick one of the feet up off the ground and, and it's and it's not you you could you could say it's a p- foot picking up problem but it's not a foot picking no. up problem it's like you were talking about yeah. and what led me down this whole convoluted conversation here that what you said is it's like it's not about once you get that attunement and and that connection you don't need a lot of techniques you know i mean and, and i'm not saying you should only you know commune with nature with your horses but when it does come to the training part it makes these days the training is a whole lot easier because you're not dealing with a horse that doesn't want to be near you you're not dealing with a horse that doesn't want to be around you you're not dealing with a horse that's worried about anything you do and so you don't have to really desensitize them to things like you know i have and a lot of people have in the past yeah yeah sorry that was a big old long-winded no, <laughs> not at all. But it, it reminds me of that sense of, you know, something I, I bang on about in our practices. It's a it's a bottom-up approach to change. Like we can't think ourselves into safety cognitively. It's got to come from information coming in to our body. It's, a, it's not a conscious process. So same with, with, with clients as with when I'm working with my horses. If they don't feel safe and by safe is often connected and accepted as we are, then there's anything I'm saying isn't really, it's, it's, it's sort of a patch effect. It's not really going to work until we've got that sense of being seen and being connected to. And from that place, um, we can create safety in the body. We can do all our um, exercises that we do and there's buy-in, but there's also trust in that too. And that's sort of the fuel that sits under, um, I guess, and a lot, as, as you said, a lot of the other, it's not about the other stuff. It, it sort of melts away often. Hmm. Yeah, it's just amazing how much you don't have to do with the other stuff um, when you start out with that that connection. Trust, I mean, you still have to train them to do things, you know. Like yeah. if someone says, oh, you know, I, I, I only connect with my horses. Like, so how's your left to right flying lead change? You know, like there are things you, you <laughs> yeah. have to teach your horse to do and there are technical things, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but, I don't, but I don't think one or the other is the holy grail. No, it's like you've got to leave a bit of space for the sort of, for the magic as well. Like I think, I don't know if that sort of makes sense, but oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the two combine. Hmm. Yeah, the two combine. Okay, next question. What quality do you admire in a person? So I think it has to be like the willingness, openness, and like bravery to show up as they really are. Like the ability to to show the world some of who you really are and to be brave enough to do that. Sort of, you know, I think that requires doing the work to be able to get out of your own way to really understand the belief systems patterns ways of seeing the world that might be um i think you know as i've talked on before like helping you to sort of deviate away from your true self but those masks that we wear of overcompensating and promoting the parts of ourselves that are celebrated and and those parts of ourselves that we hide away because they've been shamed historically or, or whatever the stories are that we've been told and we've integrated now as beliefs, when we can start to strip those away and I see people who, yeah, are really the true, the, the true selves, that's um, 
that's something I admire. And I think you can feel it in a person too, someone who's really comfortable in their own skin and has a sense of who they are. Um, but I think with that, it, it, it has to go hand in hand for it with compassion for people who can't do that yet. And I certainly, as you spoke to earlier, you know, people pleasing was or my, made up a large part of my personality for a while. You know, I was quite a chameleon depending on who I was around because I didn't want to rock the boat and, and, um, and that took a lot of work. So I have compassion and, and there's no judgment for being there, but um, it's something else when you're around someone who can show their true selves, I think. Yeah. During that, you mentioned, you said someone who can show their true selves. And then you said something, someone who's done the work and it's almost a chicken and an egg thing, isn't it? Like, you know, um, usually someone who has, who, who, you know, is there, has that, what they call the Jonathan Field vibe about them. Yeah. Um, you know, that real open sort of vibe. They, they, there's no shields up there. They've, they've, they've done the work. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I don't know if you listened to the podcast with Jonathan, but yeah. I'd been around him a bit and knew that this was a special human being. And we've, you know, we chatted about different things, but it's not till I had him on the podcast and he talked about, I knew he, you know, I knew he had an accident where he lost his hand and it was hanging by a thread and they put the thing back on. Uh, but what I didn't realize was all the therapy he had, not the, he told me about a lot of therapy, but I thought he meant physical therapy after that. Yeah. Like he was, it's, it took a year to get his hand to work or something rather, but, but the actual therapy, like working through you know, I imagine his life kind of flashed before his eyes. You know, he almost, they said if he was another two miles from the hospital, he would have bled out. Wow. You know, he said the blood was just slosh around the floor of the truck taking him to the hospital. But, but after I, he told me all that in the podcast, I'm like, oh, that's why he's like he is because he's yeah. done the work. Yeah. He's been to the dark places. Yeah, certainly. Um, I read something recently that talks about how, um, like mediocre situations or like not so bad situations can be worse than those really dark moments or those sort of transformational moments because we can sit in sort of in those not so bad spaces and we can sort of pretend that everything's okay. But I think those those sort of a lot of transformation does come out of of those moments where we maybe do hit rock bottom or we can't cope or there's something that's life-changing that sort of, requires us to, to show up in a, in a different way. Um, but yeah, he's, I did listen to that podcast and he's a, a pretty, pretty cool guy. Pretty cool story. Yeah. I mean, he's got this in person, he's got this vibe. I bet. Mm. Got a very cool, very cool vibe. It's, and it's, and it's funny when I did the podcast a couple of years ago where I answered all the questions, my answer to that question was the same as yours. Oh, really? What quality of my in person? was someone who's, and I, I think I talked about Jonathan Field, I said someone who's just open, like you can, when you talk to them, they're just like, they're right there and there's, there's no, you know, you can tell that, oh, there's no shit there, you know, like yeah. they've worked through all this stuff, you know. Yeah. And, and then, like you said, no judgment on people who haven't. But that's, that's the funny thing about learning about all this stuff in the last number of years is, now when I'm talking to somebody or somebody does something or whatever, I can be less triggered by it and go, oh, yeah, I, I see what, 
you know, I, I don't know exactly what it was that happened to you, but there's some things that happened to you that made you respond to that thing in that way. Mm-hmm. And you almost, you know, it gives you a lot of compassion for people instead of being pissed off about things that people do or judgmental or whatever. You can kind of understand how they might be the way. It's, it's like, you know, we've been talking about Gabor Mate. And, mm. and uh, have you ever read his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts? Yes. Yeah, long time ago, but yes. You know, and he was so he so, so he was a doctor in in you know a part of Vancouver that's got a lot of drug addicted people, and you know he talks about that that you know if there's addiction, there's trauma, something, and it's all rooted in trauma. And, and you know, I grew up, my parents like people that take drugs are druggies, <laughs> you know, they're just bad people, and the, and so you have this imp- you know this this impression of if mm. someone's a, an addict of some sort, like that's a judgment. Mm. You, you really have, there's mm. a judgment of them instead of now if I, hear, you know, if I hear someone's an addict or whatever, you think, oh, my goodness, I wonder what's, what terrible things happen to you to make you end up that way. And I think, yeah. you know, as, as Russell Brand says, we are all on the addiction scale somewhere. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, um you probably had a lot of like coping privilege and, and that sort of concept too um, around addictions and how we cope. But you know, I very much sort of formulate it through an, a, an attachment model and and a, and a way of getting our needs met in the best way that we can with the tools or resources we've got available. And yeah, that can. Um, I was actually talking to uh, a guy I work with training my horses. He's um he's pretty cool. He's one of those you know you talk about like those horse trainers that are out there that no one knows about and they're really cool. Like I went to one of his clinics just by chance and we got there and he's like, right, well, we're going to start off with like a pineal gland meditation. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we had such a cool experience there. So, um, but he was talking about who is that? That's Kim Daly. He is a wonderful. Oh, okay. I I was thinking it was going to be him. Like when you said you're going to start out with a pineal gland meditation, like I bet it's Kim Daly. Yeah. Yeah. He's a cool bloke. So he's, he's helping me. Um, sort of restart Dakota that that Broncos now. I'm having some really cool things going on with him and thinking about things and then them happening and all of that sort of stuff. But I won't I won't digress too much. But um, yeah, he's he sort of talked quite openly about his own um story and and being like thankful for for those things because you know what what would be the if we didn't have that you know if, if the addiction or the something else or the coping mechanism wasn't there then then what what else so kind of going back full circle to what I said about dissociation and shutting down and, and comparing Dakota's story. Like that's one of those necessary and intelligent ways in which we respond to try and meet our needs the best. And Okay. I got one more question for you. And I love it when people choose this question. What is your relationship like with fear? For a long time, I used to do everything within my power to avoid feeling afraid. Um, I... Yeah, I had, I had quite a serious accident on a horse um, because I wasn't listening to her and I was letting my ego run the show when I was about 18, 20 and trying to retrain an ex-racehorse and I was just sort of trying to toughen up. So that's where that sort of story sits. And um, and then I moved away from horses completely because I said I was too busy. I've got uni to do. I've got teaching to do. And really it was about avoiding fear. So I've got quite a history of trying to avoid feeling afraid. But now... Um, I'm thankful for it. You know, 
I recognize that my brain is preoccupied with keeping me alive <laughs> and that's a good thing, but it also can lead me to to recognize things that um, I might be sort of organizing the field in a way that supports me to feel more fearful than I am. So what I've learned to do over time is really hold on to that fact of knowing that my mind's job is to keep me alive and that, you know, wonderful, reticular activating systems doing a good job of letting in what I focus on and noticing all of those bits and pieces. And and really, I think it's the most disarming thing is approaching fear or any sort of feeling really with a sense of like open curiosity. It's quite disarming. You know, is this based on the here and now? And if so, what do I need to do to mobilize, to keep myself safe? What's the important information? Or is there a chance that this is based on the there and then and that something's being activated or, or triggered and, and really I am safe? And if that arrives, then I'll sit with it. I'll welcome whatever, wherever it comes in my body. I'll be with it, breathe into it, give it some space and see what happens next. So I think it's been a journey to learn to welcome fear and to build the safety, I think, to to be with it and to sit with it and to um, and to hold it and to be able to sort of question it and get curious. But that's sort of how I how I approach fear now. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you're talking about that. You know, my wife has always suffered from anxiety and for the longest time she did a lot of work on <clears throat> techniques to stop her from being anxious. <laughs> but then the next level above, above that was sitting with the, when it comes, sitting with the feeling, like instead of making the feeling go away, not rejecting the feeling but sitting with and feeling, what am I feeling right yeah. now in my yeah my body? Yeah, that's, I think that's a, a kind of a paradigm shift when you, Get there. Have you ever read a book by one of your countrymen named Ant Middleton? I don't think so, no. Have you heard of Ant Middleton? No, actually. He was in the SAS. Okay. He's a British guy who was in the SAS and, and um, did all sorts of missions in Afghanistan uh -huh. and stuff. But he, um, so then he, he's famous because he had a reality TV show where he'd take people through that sort of training. But anyway, he's written several books. One of them is called The Fear Bubble, and he talks about you know, when he'd be back from Afghanistan at home in London or wherever he lived with his wife and son and he'd have dread about going back again. Mm. And then when he was on the transport plane flying back there, he'd have dread about what was going to happen when he got there. And then when he got to the base, which he says is one of the safest places in the world for a human being to be, it's the most heavily armed, <laughs> and he'd have this fear and dread. Mm. And then they were flying in the helicopter to the mission, he'd have this fear and dread, and then they'd be marching to the to the place and he'd have fear and dread and then he'd finally get to the place and then and and basically what he was saying was the only time I really need to be afraid is when I'm going to kick that door in and there's an armed guy with an AK-47 on the other side of it but before that I'm not in danger there is no there's no reason to be worried about then because you're not in the here and now you're in the yeah you're in the future and he, yeah. and he you know he said he he yeah he'd spend all his time worried about what's going to happen when he kicks the door open even when he's six months away from kicking the door open and half a world away from kicking the door open. So yeah. it's a, it a fascinating, um, fascinating yeah. sort of book. Um, we've covered a number of different subjects here today, but there's something I wanted to bring up. 
page that is at the bottom of your emails. So we've been emailing back and forth, you know, trying to organise the time to, to do this. And at the bottom of, when you send an email, at the bottom of your email it says, Brisbane Equine Assisted Therapy would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and work. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging are committed to making a positive contribution to the well-being of Australian and Torres Strait Islanders, young people, by providing services that are welcoming, safe, culturally appropriate and inclusive. And I, you know, it's, it's, we talked a little bit about this before we came on the podcast, but it's, it's acknowledging, basically acknowledging colonialization and what was taken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, From, and it's, and it's not just there, it's, it's, you know, it's uh, everywhere, but it's, you know, it's really acknowledging, um, Colonialization, and the reason I wanted to bring it up because I think a lot of horse training in the past has been a bit like colonialization. Mm. You know, some of it's like slavery. You know, some of it's like slavery. But then you get to the better horse training; mm. it's still a bit like colonialization, and mm. it's you know where you know, as Leslie Desmond said on the podcast, if if no is not an option, yes has no value. Yeah. And once you really start to, you know, I think first heal your own stuff. Yeah. Because then your perspective changes. Um, you know, I, that thing in the bottom of your email, probably 10 years ago, I would have read that and I'm like, what a crock of shit. You know what I mean? So, you know, your perspective changes over time. But, but I think once you start to work through your stuff and have a different perspective, it, at least for me, it gives you a different perspective, uh, di- quite a different perspective on the horses. And I actually shared a, f- a thing on Facebook mm-hmm. the other day. I probably, let's see if I can bring it up here. It was a meme that I saw that I said was very applicable to horses too. Um, the meme said, as you heal, your attractions change too. Toxicity stops looking like excitement and peace stops mm-hmm. looking like boredom. Absolutely. And it's just unknown. Yeah. The post that I said was, this is the same with our horses. As we heal, our interactions with our horses become different, our expectations of them become different, and our interpretations of their behaviours become different. Yeah. A lot of times the activities we choose to do with our horses is related to trauma, and as we heal our traumas, the activities we choose become different. Yeah. I think one of the most important things that I teaches what what feels familiar feels safe um so if some sort of chaos some sort of fear some sort of unknown uncertainty lack of safety feels familiar to you then it's going to feel safe even if it it isn't um so when you you talk to that you know as we start to heal like that that does strip away and that no longer is something we're seeking or, or needing to be able to sort of keep the status quo and and it, it feels really really safe I, I recall a, a psychologist I worked with asked me to do a sharp inhale and hold it and really hold that sort of tension in my tummy and then 
And then she asked me to sort of fully exhale and, and to let myself go really sort of boppy. And she said, which one feels um, most familiar? And I was like, mm, it's the former, you know. And we really got into it and I did quite a lot of somatic work with her. And it took time for me to stop feeling sick when I was letting my body relax. Like it really did. Um, so mm. yeah, what what's not familiar feels unsafe, even if actually <laughs> it's, an, it's an unhealthy or, or an outdated sort of pattern. But, but yeah, going back to that message, it's, I mean, I'm on quite a journey of educating myself to be, um, sort of, I guess, working in, in the way I can with the land and, and community here that really honors the, the roots and, and knowing that a lot of what we're sort of circling back to and even my rewilding stuff really sort of touches on it. And, and I'm not an, I'm not from Australia originally. I'm from the UK, and there's there's a lot of learning for me in that. And and putting that on the bottom of my email, I even sort of went through a process of thinking: Am I? I, I don't want to just sort of tick a box of putting a little bot, you know, statement at the bottom of my email, and that's where it starts and ends. And I'm I'm doing my. What do bit. they call that? Um, like the the signature or the acknowledgement of. Um, no, no, uh, no! Doing it. Oh, uh, um, what is it called? Is it? There's a. There it's, is. It's a two banger word. It's, it's like it's like toxic positivity, but it's not. It is. Uh, oh, no, it's God. escaping me too. Messing up the podcast because I can't think of this thing. It is. Oh, I can't think of it. You guys at home will probably be able to know what I'm talking about. It's it's like going through the motions of yep. that, but you're not really doing anything about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm mindful of not that not being where that work starts and ends for me and really honouring the, the roots of a lot of the things that I'm starting to to journey back to now are really things that have been out there for a long time that I'm just starting to put my own words to. So there's not, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got a number of books that people have sent me or I've bought on um, – Aboriginal wisdom and, and, you know, just Indigenous practices. And, and it's like these people lived for the longest time in in cohabitation with nature, like they got along with nature. They didn't, yeah, it's just there's just so much we've got to learn about that sort of stuff. Certainly. So tell me, you told me before that you and Kathy Price are up to something pretty cool pretty soon. What are you guys up to? Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this. So um, I've worked with Kathy sort of personally and with my horses quite a bit. And I think, you know, maybe me coming from that science background too and being a bit sort of slow to dip a toe into all things woo or different, you know, um, they sort of really resonated with Kathy's story. So she's done some wonderful work for me personally and with um, my horses and I knew she was coming over here and I wondered if we could sort of catch up in some way and then I thought why don't we host something so I f you know I feel like when my work's at its best it's it's not really me that's doing it it's sort of just it comes through me it's just it just happens and it's not it's sort of and I wondered what it would be like for me to combine some of the you know, the, the knowledge, the teachings, the practices, the somatic stuff from the rewilding program that 
I've developed and Kathy's work and we're calling it a return to self and it's going to be two days at my facility here so sort of yeah 40 minutes north 50 minutes north of Brisbane city I think first weekend in September it's just gonna be like a small group of people sort of rewilding and returning to self and and they get to meet Kathy over here which I'm so excited about because I'm a a bit of a fan of oh so that's the weekend before our podcast summit in Melbourne yes that's correct yeah yeah because that's why Kathy's coming over here. yeah perfect Mm. that'll be fun so how do how do more how people find more out about uh, Heather Lucas and what you are doing? Yeah, well, thanks. Well, um, I've got my Brisbane Equine Assisted Therapy work sits under BrisbaneEquineAssistedTherapy.net.au, and we are also on Facebook and Instagram. There, that's the practice that's been running for the longest time. So there's a lot of of stuff and ways to contact me, work with me. There we have um the half day retreats and they're also quite selfishly run this little club called the connection collective where groups of like-minded horse people can come together and sit and talk all things polyvagal theory and horses or whatever it might be (laughs) but but really probably most of the yeah most of the work we've talked to here will sit under the rewilding so it's just rewilding.au so no other bits and I've got a little Instagram for that and a, a bit of a Facebook page, but really that's that's just being born at the moment. So it's it's growing. I've got a pilot group for the online course that's full, but my hope is to run a live version of, of the course and then a, a sort of self-study version. And there's some other opportunities like coaching and other bits and pieces too, but, but probably the rewilding stuff is what I would imagine where I will imagine you'll your listeners might want to sort of go to if they're interested in connecting they're super welcome i love hearing people's stories and journeys and connecting so that's super welcome that's awesome stuff well i think you, you're doing amazing stuff out there in the world oh, keep on you. doing it and thank you so much for joining me on the journey on podcast thanks so much for it it's been a pleasure you guys at home oh you're welcome um you guys at home thanks so much for listening we'll catch you on the next episode Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.